This podcast is sponsored by Oz. Oz is a premium disposable vape product made with the highest pharmaceutical grade quality ingredients and comes in 12 delicious flavors like velvet tobacco, sweet apple, strawberry banana, grape ice, lemon tart, mango, and so many more. Right now, Oz is offering all of my listeners 50% off their orders. So head on over to letsoz.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 50% off your order. With O's, you'll look forward to your moment of zen. This episode is sponsored by Doom and Groom. Doom and Groom are a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. Their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe, keeping your hair and skin healthy and hydrated. All of their products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and use my code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off your purchase. Once again, that is doomandgroom.net, promo code HARMONYDOOM. Spooky, scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul, seal your doom tonight. Hi loves, what's up and welcome to this week's episode of What the Actual F. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, hi there, my name's Harmony, and I'm so glad to have you here. I cannot tell you enough how much I love October. It's spooky season, it's Halloween time, it is my favorite time of year. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, scream in the dead of night. This is So if you tuned in on the last episode of What the Actual F, you know that I have jumped into the spooky season and we talked about a ghost that actually caused murder. Now for the record, there wasn't really a ghost. There was a man who was causing the whole incident and an innocent bricklayer ended up being killed because of this. If you want to know more about the Hammerfield ghost, check out the last episode of What the Actual F. But if you're here to listen to the second episode in our spooky season this year, you are in store. I think I found a really good one. Many of you know I love to sit here and tell you about true crime. But how often have we talked about vampires? I mean, besides when I mock Twilight. My family, we're different from others of our kind. We only hunt animals. We learn to control our thirst. But it's you. You're sent like a drug to me like my own personal brand of heroin now i know i have ragged on twilight in the past but truth be known i did like the books the movies however you better hold on tight spider monkey (laughs) yeah i wasn't really that big of a fan but we're not here to talk about the sparkling vampires we're here to talk about the old lore of vampires, but just for a moment. What is a vampire? A vampire is a creature from folklore. It survives by feeding on the vital essence of life, or human blood. Now in European folklore, fun fact, a vampire is actually an undead creature that often visits its loved ones and would cause mischief or death in the neighborhoods that their loved ones were said to inhabit. These vampires were often described to be covered in a shroud and bring this dark presence with them, being said to have looked bloated, gaunt, and pale. 
Now, in modern times, the vampire is generally held to be a fictitious entity. Although belief in similar vampiric creatures, such as the chupacabra, still persist in many cultures. Early folk belief in vampires has sometimes been ascribed to the ignorance of the body's process due to decomposition. Not a lot of us know how the body breaks down because, well, we don't study it. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a tendency to hang around the dead and bloated. So due to the misunderstandings of decomp after death and how people in a pre-industrial society would try to rationalize what they saw in the corpses, that led to a lot of the lore in the basis of vampires today. Another big stake, <laughs> you see what I did there? Another big stake in the vampire lore in today is that from 1897's novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. This is considered a quintessential vampire novel and provided the basis of basically the whole modern vampire legend. Okay, I hear you, I hear you. What does all this have to do with today's episode? What if I told you there is a very fascinating and suggestive tale in the history of New Orleans? New Orleans is known for many things, its nightlife and also its ghost. It is indeed a city of gruesome stories from blood being spilled all over the streets, horrible plantation owners, and so much more. It is also the home of a gruesome twosome known as the Carter Brothers, or who some believe the two vampires that once stalked New Orleans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to New Orleans, Louisiana, home of the hits. And if you're from out of town, <laughs> welcome to the third world. So here we are in New Orleans. The year is 1932. Suddenly, a young girl is seen running down Royal Street. She is visibly shaking and panicking when a police officer stops her and tries to calm her down. Her story seems a bit far-fetched to say the least. She tells the officer that she had been tied up by two brothers, along with several other victims. They were held captive at the brothers' place so that they could, in turn, drink all of the victims' blood. The girl claimed that she was only able to escape due to her captor's carelessness in securing her ropes. Now, the policeman was somewhat skeptical, but agreed to follow her back to the scene of the crime. Now, the police officer was a bit skeptic of her story, but he decided to go ahead and agree with her and follow her back to the home on the corner of Royal and St. Anne. Once the police and the girl arrived at the home, which was owned by the Carter brothers, they were horrified to find, as the girl described, four other victims, half dead and tied to chairs in one of the rooms. All of the victims had their wrists wrapped up in bandages, still moist and stained with blood. Sorry for anyone that doesn't like the word moist. <laughs> Whoopsies. The policemen also found two more bodies that were wrapped up in blankets and tucked away in another room. The unmistakable and suffocating odor of death was permeating the home. So where were the brothers? It seemed as though the brothers left early each morning just before the break of day and returned every evening just after dark. 
Now, immediately upon their return, they would take the bandages off each of the captive's wrist. Using a knife, they would reopen the wounds until blood would flow freely from the victim's cuts. They would then catch the blood in cups from which they drank until their hunger was satiated. The brothers would then redress the wounds with fresh bandages. They would speak very little and give no concern for the victim's well-being whatsoever. It seemed as though the kidnapped were nothing more than just a food source for the two. Unaware that the girl had escaped, John and Wayne Carter went about their routine as usual on this day. Only this time, the police waited for the brothers to return home. They were quickly apprehended and upon their capture, confessed almost immediately. You got me now! You got me now! You got me now! You figured me out! After their gruesome confession, they begged to be murdered. The brothers explained to authorities that they were, in fact, vampires. That's right. They stated they did all of these heinous things because they were, indeed, these undead creatures. Apparently, the two begged to be murdered because if they were released back out into society ever, they would have no option but to continue to kill, as they had a need for drinking blood that was beyond their control. Now, the story does kind of change a little bit on how many victims the two brothers actually had, but it's stated to be somewhere in between 7 and 14 people. The number of bodies is different in each little article that I could find. But I mean, if you ask me, one body is already more than enough. Another thing about the two brothers is that they were just seeming to be like normal men in the society at the time. They behaved absolutely like everybody else, even had normal labor jobs in New Orleans. They did go on to be tried as serial killers and were found guilty. A few years later, when the Carters were finally executed, their bodies were placed in a New Orleans vault. The cemeteries in New Orleans are quite picturesque. Not only are they more ornate than the rest of those in the nation, they seem to house many generations in one single family vault. In these vaults, the remains sift down into the bottom of the vault when it is all in a, a rumble and a mess. Then a new body is slid inside. Now here is one of the creepiest parts about this story and the Carter's family vaults. Many years after the Carter brother's death and another family member was being placed into the family vault, they discovered that the vault was completely empty. No John and no Wayne they were gone. To this day, there is still said to be sightings of the two. According to many, the brothers still stalk the French Quarter. Now add to that, many years later, a new owner of the home saw two figures that matched the description of the men outside on the balcony one night. Apparently, the two were whispering to each other while looking inside. Both figures, upon being noticed, jumped off the top of the three-story balcony and took off running when they hit the ground. Now, I don't know if there's a lot of validity to that story, but that is one of the claims about these two, that they are just running around New Orleans and wreaking havoc. Now, there is a rumor that if a vampire drinks your blood seven nights in a row, then and only then can you become a vampire. Well, some of the people who were found in the Carter brothers' apartment 
had in fact been there for over seven days. One of those was a very warped fellow by the name of Felipe. He went on to become a notorious serial killer himself. And, of course, he would not just merely kill his victims. He actually ended up drinking all 32 of his victims' blood. Now, there is something that apparently happened back in the 70s, but before I share with you that, I need to tell you another aspect about New Orleans. During the colonization of New Orleans, France was having a really hard time getting women to go over there. This was mainly due to the fact that the women did not want to travel with the men that were being sent over. The men that were being sent from France alongside these women were thieves, murderers, and genuinely bad people. Not to mention, the women weren't too excited about going somewhere littered with snakes, alligators, mosquitoes, and worst of all, the humidity. If you've never lived in humidity, God, you are lucky. I'm gonna tell you right now, sometimes you can't breathe. Finally, and eventually, women did decide to go. Some sources say that they were nuns, while others say that they were prostitutes, but nevertheless, a few of them did make it. Now, it's not that these women wouldn't leave France in order or saying that they would end up in New Orleans. It's just that many of them would actually end up sneaking off the ship in Mobile, Alabama. Now, why am I telling you about this and these women? Well, these women would arrive with some pretty interesting luggage. Their suitcases were shaped like little coffins. So, to the New Orleans men's dismay, all that arrived in New Orleans were 300 of these coffin-like suitcases, it seemed. No real women actually ended up ever truly arriving. You see, though the women would leave France, just about all of them would get off the ship when it stopped in Mobile. And the other women who decided not to leave were killed by the men on the ship. So all that arrives are these little coffin suitcases. Now some stories say that they were completely empty and some say that they actually ended up containing the undead. These suitcases were reportedly stored in the attic of a convent in the French Quarter, where, according to rumors, they still sit today. They sit behind windows that have been nailed shut because, reportedly, they have a strange habit of just opening up on their own. Now this brings me to the final tale that incorporates all that I just told you. Years later, in 1978, two amateur reporters demanded that the convent's priest let them in to see these supposed coffin suitcases. Now, of course, the priest denied this access at all. So, the two amateur reporters took it upon themselves to one night climb over a wall with their recording equipment and set up their very own workstation. Then... The next morning, the reporter's equipment was found strewn all about the street outside the convent. And there, on the convent's front steps, they were found almost completely decapitated. But that's not the only thing. Over 80% of the blood in their body had been completely drained. You may be thinking, this has to be due to the fact that their head was almost completely ripped off. No. 
the blood had been drained before that injury even occurred. To this day, this unsolved crime baffles investigators. Now we're not done with this episode just yet. I thought I would throw in another case for you. This one centers around Halloween and has become quite the mystery in and of itself. This is the case of Kurt Sova. Well, changing directions now. The nearly 40-year-old mysterious death of a Newburgh Heights teenager is drawing national attention now, including from a well-known pop star. Mark Namick explains what's behind renewed interest in this case and if the family is any closer to answers. About 5.30 yesterday afternoon, some kids were cutting through this dump behind Republic Steel. When they got to this pond, they saw the body of 17-year-old Kurt Sova. The year was 1981, and five days earlier, Kurt skipped school, went drinking with some friends, and ended up at a house party on the city's west side. There were people who were around him. You know, there were people who were with him, and he just kind of disappeared into thin air, and he shows up dead five days later. Time and shoddy detective work seemed to bury the case, in any hope that the family would know what really happened. When Kurt's mother died a few years ago, Kurt's brother Kevin found a box of case materials she had collected for decades. He took it to Newburgh Heights Police. There's a number of challenges with this case. You know, it wasn't investigated thoroughly. You know, th there was just a not whole lot of good police work done. Chief John Majoy dug in and invited a group of Tiffin University students studying criminology to add fresh eyes. Last weekend, the case was at the center of a convention in Chicago that paired true crime buffs with criminal forensic experts who examined the case evidence. These folks were seated at tables and they were going through this stuff with a fine-tooth comb. Among the people studying the case with the chief and Kevin were actress and singer Selena Gomez and her mother. I had dinner with Selena Gomez Saturday night, her and her mother, and they're talking about different components of the case. Kevin says he had reservations, but the attention was worth it. Over 300 strangers taking their time, spending their money, and passionately wanting to find out what happened to your brother. More emotions that I had to deal with there than I could have even imagined. He now believes everything leads back home. That's all done, and I think it's time to get back to where it was before we left and find out what happened to Kurt. On October 28, 1981, three young boys in Newburgh Heights, Ohio, made a discovery of a dead body in a ravine. Now, other than some scratches and bruises, the body showed no obvious sign of injury. One tennis shoe was found in a nearby pile of rocks. The other shoe was missing. Several hours later, the body was identified as 17-year-old Kurt Sova. An autopsy would reveal that Kurt had died no more than a day and a half before his body had been discovered. Yet his parents had in fact reported him missing five days earlier. Where was Kurt during the five days that he was missing? How did he die? And where was he killed? Kurt lived with his parents in a quiet neighborhood. He was the youngest of four boys and the closest to his parents. Dorothy Sova was Kurt's mother, and she had this to say according to an article. Quote, he never had any trouble with the neighbors. I never had any trouble with him in school. I never had any trouble with him with the police. That's why I can't understand what happened. Kurt left home for the last time late on a Friday afternoon. Now just one block from his house, he met up with a friend who was on his way to a party. That night, when Kurt did not return home, his mother knew something was wrong. Quote, it was not like him to be gone overnight. 
It was not like him to stay out after 10, 10.30 at the latest. And that was only when we knew where he was. This night, he just never came home. When Kurt wasn't home by Saturday morning, his parents began calling his friends. Kurt's father, Ken, searched for him around their neighborhood. However, he would find no sign of Kurt. On Sunday, the Sobas registered Kurt as a missing person with the police. Meanwhile, his mother, Dorothy, covered the neighborhood with missing flyers for her son. Quote, we searched the ravines, searched the schoolyards, I even went so far as to search dumpsters looking for him. God, I could not imagine. Oh my God. Sorry guys, whenever I talk about missing kids, it always hits me in my heart. I am a parent, I'm a mother to two boys, and I could never imagine that feeling. On Sunday afternoon, Dorothy learned that Kurt had actually been at a party on Friday night. This was located at a duplex less than two miles from where the Sovas lived. According to Dorothy, the party was given by a girl named Susan. Dorothy had this to say, quote, When I went there, the girl who had held the party was not there. It was another girl. When the girl returned home that had rented the apartment where the party was, she called me and said that she never saw my son and she had in fact had no party. But a pizza delivery man contradicted Susan. He stated that there had been a party at that duplex on that very Friday night. Dorothy contacted Susan again, and this time she admitted that Kurt had in fact been there. Susan also went on to say that more than a dozen people had ended up dropping by. Some of them were older than Kurt, and most of them were people that he had never actually even met. Susan also told Dorothy that Kurt had been drinking heavily, but those who knew Kurt say that he wasn't really much of a drinker. Dorothy talked to one of Kurt's friends, in fact, the one that he ended up going to the party with. His mother states, The fellow that Kurt went to the party with told me that Kurt had suddenly become ill. They took him outside for some air and because it was a chilly night, he said he went upstairs to get Kurt's jacket and he left him hanging on the fence. He said he went up to get his jacket and came back down and then Kurt was gone. Dorothy states that that is when she became hysterical. She states, I thought, my God, something happened to him at that party or in between the party and home. Only I didn't think in my wildest dreams that I would expect that he would turn up dead. Five days after the party, Kurt's body was found in a ravine just 500 yards from Susan's duplex. Lieutenant Robert Karras of the Newburgh Heights Police had this to say, It's our belief that his body was dumped out there, and whoever the person or persons were knew the area and they knew that people go back there and kids play back there, so eventually, within a certain amount of time, he would be found. The police searched the area for any clues. They found Kurt's left shoe wedged in some nearby rocks, but they never found his right one. Kurt's body was taken to the coroner's office for an autopsy. It was determined that he had only died 24 to 36 hours before his body had been found, which meant that he had been alive for at least three days after he left the party or was last seen at the party. However, Chief Deputy Coroner Dr. Lester Adelson couldn't determine the exact cause of Kurt's death. Quote, The manner of death in this particular case was signed out as probably accidental. 
He hadn't been beaten in any way. He hadn't been traumatized in any way. He didn't have enough alcohol to end his life. He had no pre-existing natural disease. And, as Sherlock Holmes said, you eliminate all other possibilities, and that which remains is the truth. This was a diagnosis by exclusion. Now, Kurt's mom, Dorothy, wasn't buying this. She stated, I didn't believe they couldn't tell me how Kurt died. For my peace of mind, I wanted to know what happened to my boy. Dorothy began to piece together a series of strange events that occurred during the five days her son was missing. A friend of Kurt's named David Tusknik claimed that he saw Kurt three days after he disappeared. Kurt and another boy were walking along a busy street less than a mile from the Soba home, according to David. In fact, David had this to say. I pulled over to offer Kurt a ride at this point. And a van pulled up and Kurt yelled out, Franco! They both ran over to the van and they got in. I didn't know at the time that Kurt was missing. If I would have known he had been reported missing, there would probably have been something I could have done at that point. I could have followed the van, but I didn't. I just didn't know. And two days later, he was found dead. And that was the last time I saw him. Now that same day, a stranger who had been seen around the Sova's neighborhood noticed Kurt's missing poster in the window of a local record store. He apparently told the store manager he might as well take down the poster because the person on it would be found dead in two days. The manager was a bit skeptical. However, she soon had a reason to be afraid. She said, quote, The next day, before the record shot had opened, he left flowers and a note, and the note said, Roses are red, the sky is blue. They found him dead, and they'll find you too. No, don't like that. Police did end up tracking this man down and briefly questioned him. He seemed to be mentally unstable, according to them. But there was no evidence that he committed any crime. So, he was simply released. By the time that Kurt was found dead, the man had disappeared. But there would be another lead. On the very day that Kurt's body was found, Dorothy got an early morning phone call from Susan. You guys remember her, the one who threw the party. Dorothy says that, quote, she told me that someone was sleeping in her basement and perhaps it was Kurt. And I thought, why are you calling me now after lying to me so many times? I just didn't know whether to believe her or not. This is when Kurt's father, Ken, decided he would go over to Susan's house. A quote from Ken himself, I went down to the basement. I thought maybe he was sick or he was hurt and I figured if I got down there and found him that maybe I could do something for him. There I found a cot that looked like somebody had in fact slept in it. After searching the whole basement, I didn't find anybody in there. I had no idea if it was Kurt or not that had ever slept down there. All I know is somebody did sleep in the cot that night and when I got there, they were gone. Now. Dorothy believes she knows what happened to her son. She says, quote, I think Kurt was there. I think he was already dead in that cot, but I think they panicked and got rid of his body in that ravine. Because remember, that ravine was only 500 yards away from the duplex. Dorothy and Ken are both certain of one thing. Just 24 hours before his body was found, Kurt was not in a ravine. In fact, that ravine had already been searched. This is a quote from Kurt's father. I know he wasn't there the day that I went searching. They must have dumped him off there that evening. 
I looked around and I'm sure that if Kurt was down there, I would have noticed that bright yellow t-shirt that he had on against any terrain. So who put Kurt's body in the ravine? Three months after Kurt died, the mystery of his death would intensify. The body of Eugene Kivet, a boy Kurt used to know, was found in another ravine on the same street, just two and a half miles from where Kurt's body had been discovered. Both boys had been missing just for a few days before they were found dead. And Eugene's right shoe was never found as well. This case is still open and classified as a quote, probable accident. There are new investigators assigned to Kurt's case along with a lot of internet sleuths. And one of those is Selena Gomez herself. So just wanna look good for you, good for you. Who would have even guessed that Selena Gomez likes true crime? I mean, to be fair, I never assume that anyone does because it's just not a common topic to mention in passing. If you guys want to know more about Kurt's case, go ahead and check it out. Unsolved Mysteries did a whole episode about it, but this was the early Unsolved Mysteries. Well guys, that's it. That is the episode for this week. I really hope you guys enjoyed these two cases. I really wanted to mix some sort of spooky factor or Halloween entanglement into the episode. So until the next episode guys, have fun carving pumpkins, buying overpriced candy to give random strangers that show up at your door, and prepare for a night of ghouls, goblins, and monsters galore. Happy spooky season guys, I'll talk to you on the next episode of What the Actual F. Love you later, bye!